0: chapter five part five of the worst journey in the world volume one by apsley cherry garrard this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter five the depot journey part five on march sixteenth the last sledge party to the barrier that season started for corner camp with provisions to increase the existing depot there the party was in charge of lieutenant evans and consisted of Bowers, Oates, Atkinson Wright, and myself, with two seamen, Crean and Ford. The journey out and back took eight days, and was uneventful as sledge journeys go. Thick weather prevailed for several days, and after running down our distance to Corner Camp, we waited for it to clear. We found ourselves six miles from the depot, and among crevasses, which goes to show how easy it is to steer off the course under such conditions, and how creditable the navigation is when a course is kept correctly, sometimes more by instinct than by skill. But we got our first experience of cold-weather sledging, which was useful. The thirties and forties are not very cold, as we were to understand cold afterwards, but quite cold enough to start with, cold enough to teach you how to look after your foot-gear, handle metal, and not to waste time. However, the sun was still well up during the day, and this makes all the difference, since any sun does more drying of clothes and gear than none at all. At the same time we began to realise the difficulties which attended upon spring journeys, though we could only imagine what might be the trials on a journey in mid-winter such as we intended to essay. It is easy to be wise after the event, but in looking back upon the expedition as a whole, and the tragedy which was to come, mainly from the unforeseen cold of the autumn on the barrier, such as is in February, it seems that we might have grasped that these temperatures were lower than might have been expected in the middle of March, quite near the open sea, Even if this had occurred to anyone, and I do not think that it did, I doubt whether the next step of reasoning would have followed, namely, the possibility that the interior of the barrier would, as actually happened, prove to be much colder than was expected at this date. On the contrary, I several times heard Scott mention the possibility of the Polar Party not returning until April. At the same time, it must be realised that pony transport to the foot of the Beardmore Glacier made a late start inevitable. For the blizzards our ponies had already suffered proved that spring weather on the barrier would be intolerable to them. As a matter of fact, Scott says in his message to the public, No one in the world would have expected the temperature and surfaces which we encountered at this time of the year. We returned to find everything at hut point, including the hut, covered with frozen spray. This was the result of a blizzard, of which we only felt the tail end on the barrier. Scott wrote, the sea was breaking constantly and heavily on the ice-foot the spray carried right over the point covering all things and raining on the roof of the hut poor vince's cross some thirty feet above the water was enveloped in it of course the dogs had a very poor time and we went and released two or three getting covered in spray during the operation our wind-clothes very wet this is the third gale from the south since our arrival here i e in two and a half weeks any one of these would have rendered the bay impossible for a ship and therefore it is extraordinary that we should have entirely escaped such a blow when the discovery was in it in nineteen o two it is difficult to see long distances across open water at this time of year because the comparatively warm water throws up into the air a fog known as frost smoke if there is a wind this smoke is carried over the surface of the sea but if calm the smoke rises and forms a dense curtain. Standing on arrival heights, which form the nail of the finger-like peninsula on which we now lived, we could see the four islands which lie near Cape Evans, and a black smudge in the face of the glaciers which descend from Erebus, which we knew to be the face of the steep slope above Cape Evans, afterwards named The Ramp. But for the present, our comfortable hut might have been thousands of miles away for all the good it was to us as soon as the wind fell calm the sea was covered by a thin layer of ice in twenty-four hours it might be four or five inches thick but as yet it never proved strong enough to resist the next blizzard in march the ice to the south was safe there was appearance of ice in the two days at the foot of erebus's slopes in the beginning of april we treated newly formed ice with far too little respect it was on april the seventh that scott asked whether any of us would like to walk northwards over the newly formed ice towards castle rock We had walked about two miles, the ice heaving up and down as we went, dodging the open pools and leads to the best of our ability, when Taylor went right in. Luckily he could lever himself out without help, and return to the hut with all speed. We prepared to cross this ice to Cape Evans the next day, but the whole of it went out in the night. On another occasion we were prepared to set out the following morning, but the ice on which we were to cross went out on the turn of the tide some five hours before we timed ourselves to start. Scott was of the opinion that the ice in the two bays under Erebus was firm, and prepared to essay this route. The first of these bays is formed by the junction of the Hut Point Peninsula with Erebus to the south, and by Glacier Tongue to the north. Crossing Glacier Tongue, a party can descend on to the second bay beyond, the northern boundary of which is Cape Evans. The Delbridge Islands of which Great Razorback is in direct line between Glacier Tongue and Cape Evans, help to hold in any ice which forms here. The route had never been attempted before, but it was hoped that a way down from the peninsula onto the frozen sea might be found at the Hutton Cliffs, an outcrop of lava rock in the irregular ice face. A party consisting of Scott, Bowers, Taylor, and Seaman Evans with one tent, and Lieutenant Evans, Wright, Debenham, Cran, and Crean, with the another, started for Hut Point. It was dark to the south and snowing by the time they reached the top of Ski-slope. We helped them past Third Crater. The ice from Hut Point to Glacier Tongue was impossible, and so they went on past Castle Rock, and were to try and get down somewhere by the Hutton Cliffs on to some fast sea-ice, which seemed to have held there some time, and so across Glacier Tongue on to sea-ice which also seemed to be fast, as far as Cape Evans. After lunch Wilson and I started about 4 p.m. in half a blizzard. It was much better on the heights, and fairly clear towards Erebus, but we could not see any traces of the party on the ice. April 12th This morning, as it was beginning to get light, a blizzard started, and it is blowing very hard now. The large amount of snow which has fallen will make it very thick. We are all anxious about the returning party, for Scott talked of camping on the sea ice. The ice in Arrival Bay, just north of Hut Point, has gone out. They have sleeping bags, food for two meals and a full primus for each tent april thirteenth we are very anxious about the returning party especially when all the ice north of hut point went out the blizzard blew itself out this morning and it was a great change to see the white island and the bluff once more atkinson came in before lunch and told me that looking from the heights the ice from glacier tongue to cape evans appeared to have gone out this sobered our lunch we all made our way to second crater afterwards and found the ice from the Hutton Cliffs to Glacier Tongue, and thence to Cape Evans, was still in. Before leaving, Scott arranged to give Very lights at ten PM from Cape Evans on the first clear night of the next three. Tonight is the third, and the first clear night. We were out punctually, and then as we watched a flare blazed up, followed by quite a firework display. We all went wild with excitement, knowing that all was well. Mears ran in and soaked some awning with paraffin and we lifted it as an answering flare and threw it into the air again and again until it was burning in little bits all over the snow the relief was great bowers must tell the story of the returning party we topped the ridges and headed for erebus beyond castle rock it looked a little threatening at first but cleared a bit as we got on it was quite interesting to be breaking new ground scott is a fine stepper in a sledge and he set a fast and easy swing all the time it was snowing and misty when we got beyond the hutton cliffs but we pitched the tents for lunch before going down the slope. There was no doubt that the blizzard was coming up. It cleared during lunch, which we finished about 3.30 p.m., as it had been a long morning march. It was just as well for us that the mist cleared, for the slope was not only crevassed in one direction, but it ended in a high ice-cliff. By working along we found a lowish place about thirty feet down from top to bottom. Over this we lowered men and sledges. It had started to blow, and the drift was flying off the cliff in clouds. We put in a couple of strong male bamboos to lower the last man away, leaving the alpine rope there to facilitate ascent, i.e. for any party returning to Hut Point with food. We then repacked the sledges, and headed across the bay towards Glacier Tongue, where we arrived after dark about 6 p.m. The young sea ice was covered in a salt deposit, which made it like pulling a sledge over treacle instead of ice and it was very heavy going after the snow uplands the tongue was mostly hard blue ice which is slipperiness itself and crevassed every few yards most of these were bridged but you were continually pushing a foot or sometimes two into nothingness in the semi-darkness none of us however went down to the extent of our harness arrived on the other side we struck a sheltered dip where we decided to camp for something to eat it was after eight p m and I was for camping there for the night, as it seemed to me folly to venture upon a piece of untried, newly frozen sea-ice in inky darkness, with a blizzard coming up behind us. Against this, of course, we were only five miles from Cape Evans, and though we had hardly any grub with us, not having anticipated the cliff, or the saltiness of the sea-ice, and having to set out to do the journey in one day, I thought hunger in a sleeping-bag better than lying out in a blizzard on less than one foot of young ice. After a meal, we started off at 9.30 p.m. in a snowy mist, in which we could literally see nothing. It had fallen calm, though, and at last we could see the outline of the nearest of the Delbridge Islands, called the Great Razorback. Our course lay for a smaller island ahead called the Little Razorback. As we neared the Little Razorback Island, the snow hid everything. In fact, we could hardly see the island itself when we were right under it. It was impossible to go wandering on so we had after all to camp on the sea ice there was scarcely any snow to put on the valances of the tents and the wet salt soaked the bags and you knew that there was only about six or ten inches of precarious ice between you and the black waters beneath altogether i decided that i for one would lie awake in such an insecure camp as expected the blizzard overtook us shortly after midnight and the shrieking of the wind among the rocks above might have been pretty unpleasant had it not assured me that we were still close to the island and not moving seaward needless to say i said that i was sure the camp was as safe as a church at daylight taylor dived out and in until the wind from the door blew out the ice valance and the next moment the tent closed on us like an umbrella we would never have spread it again had not some of the drift settled around us and so we were able to secure it after an hour or two. The air was full of thick drift, and to work off some of Taylor's energy, I said we might climb the island and look for Cape Evans. The island rose up straight from the sea at a sharp angle all round, and we climbed it with difficulty. On the top we saw the reason of its name, as it was absolutely so sharp right along that you could bestride the top as though sitting in a saddle. It was too windy sitting up there to be pleasant, so we descended, having seen nothing but clouds of flying snow, and the peak of inaccessible island. At the bottom of the weather side we found a small ledge perfectly flat, and just big enough to take two tents pitched close together. At this place the island made a wind buffer, and it was practically calm, though the blizzard yelled all around. I urged Captain Scott to camp on this ledge, and Taylor fizzled for making for Cape Evans so scott decided to ensure taylor's safety as he put it and we made for the ledge once there we had an ideal camp on good hard ground and no wind and had we had food the blizzard might have lasted a week for aught i cared we were two nights there and on the morning of the thirteenth it took off enough for us to head for home we saw sunny jims simpsons observatory on the hill but still did not know how the hut had fared till we got round the cape into north bay there was the winter station all intact however and though north bay had only just frozen in it was strong enough to bear us safely somebody saw us and in another moment the hut poured out her little party consisting of Sonny jim ponting nelson dale Lashley, hooper clissold old dimitri and anton ponting's face was a study as he ran up he failed to recognize any of us and stopped dead with a blank look as he admitted afterwards he thought it was the norwegian expedition for the space of a moment and then we were all being greeted as heartily as if we had really done something to be proud of. The motors had had to be shifted, and a lot of gear placed higher up the beach, but the water had never reached near the hut, so all was well. Inside it looked tremendous, and we looked at our grimy selves in a glass for the first time for three months. No wonder Ponting did not recognize the ruffians. He photographed a group of us, which will amuse you some day, when it is permissible to send photos. We ate heartily, and had hot baths, and generally civilised ourselves. I have since concluded that the hut is the finest place in the southern hemisphere, but then I could not shake down to it at once. I hankered for a sleeping bag out in the snow, or for the blubbery atmosphere of Hutt Point. I expect the truth of the matter was that all my special pals, Bill, Cherry, Titus, and Hatch, had been left behind. We found eight ponies at winter quarters, in the stable, Hackenschmidt having died these with our two at hut point left us with ten to start the winter with i at once looked out at the other big siberian horse that had been a pair with my late lamented they were the only siberian ponies all the rest being manchurians and singled him out for myself should the powers that be be willing a party had to return to hut point with some provisions in a day or two so i asked to go captain scott had decided to go himself but he said he would be very pleased if i would go too So, it being a fine day, we left the following Monday. The two teams consisted of Captain Scott, Lashley, Day, and Dimitri, with one sledge and tent, and Crean, Hooper, Nelson, and myself with the other. We had it in fine as far as the glacier tongue. And then along came the cheery old south wind in our faces. We crossed the tongue and struggled against this till we could camp under the hutton cliffs where we got some shelter. All of us had our faces frostbitten, the washing and shaving having made mine quite tender, It was a bit of a job getting up the cliff. We had to stand on top of a pile of fallen ice and hoist a ten feet sledge onto our shoulders, at least onto the shoulders of the tall ones. This just touched the overhanging cornice. A cornice of snow is caused by a continual drift over a sharp edge. It takes all sorts of fantastic shapes, but usually hangs over like this. Looking edgeways it looks as if it must fall down, but as a matter of fact it is usually very tough indeed. In this case steps were cut in it with an ice-axe from our extemporary ladder, and Captain Scott and I got up first. With the aid of a rope in the ladder we got the light ones up first, and hauled up the gear last of all. Hanging the sledge from the top with one rope enabled the last two to struggle up it, assisted by a rope round them from above. It was a cold job, and more frostbites occurred in two of our novices, one on a foot and the other on a finger. We faced the blast again, but cut it partially behind us, on reaching the heights. We camped for the night under Castle Rock, on an inclined slope. It calmed down to a glorious night with low temperature. Crean and I lay head downhill to make Nelson and Hooper, who had never sledged before, more comfortable. As a result, Crean slipped half out of the tent, and let in a cold stream of air under the valance for which I was at a loss to account until the morning disclosed him thus, fast asleep of course. It takes a lot to worry Captain Scott's coxswain. We arrived at Hat Point and had a great reception there chiefly on account of the food we brought, particularly the sugar. We had been living on some paraffin sugar when I left before, and even this was finished. The next day we stayed there to kill seals. Cherry and I skinned one and then went for a walk around Cape Armitage. It was blowing big guns off the Cape, fairly fizzing in fact. We went in as far as Pram Point, then turned, coming in with it behind us. I only had a thin balaclava, and my ears were nearly nipped. Meanwhile those of us who had been left at Hut Point with the ponies and dogs journeyed out one afternoon to safety camp to get some more bales of compressed fodder. Easter Sunday was spent in a howling blizzard, which cleared in the afternoon sufficiently to see a golden sun sinking into a sea of purple frost-smoke and drift. I have it on record that we had tinned haddock this day for breakfast, made by oats with great care a biscuit-and-cheese hoosh for lunch, and a pemmican fry this evening, followed by cocoa, with a tin of sweetened Nestlé's milk in it. Truly a great luxury. For the rest of us we mended our finesco, and we read Bleak House. Meares told us how the Chinese, who were going to war with the Lolos, who were one of the eighteen tribes on the borders of Tibet and China, tied the Lolo hostage to a bench, and having cut his throat, caught the blood which dripped from it. Into this they dipped their flag, and then cut out the heart and liver, which the officers ate, while the men ate the rest. The relief party arrived on April the 18th. We had spent such a happy week, just the seven of us, at the discovery hut, that I think, glad as we were to see the men, we would most of us had rather been left undisturbed, and I expected that it would mean that we should have to move homewards, as it turned out. Mears is to be left in charge of the party which remains, namely Ford and Keon, of the old stages and nelson day Lashley and dimitri of the newcomers. he is very amusing with the stores and is evidently afraid that the food which has just been brought in sugar self-raising flour chocolate etc will all be eaten up by those who have bought it so we have dampers without butter and a minimum of chocolate tuesday and thursday night was one of our few still cold days nearly minus thirty the sea northwards from hut point whence the ice had previously all gone out froze nearly five inches by Wednesday midday, when we got three more seal. Scott was evidently thinking that on Thursday, when we were to start, we might go by the sea ice all the way, when suddenly, with no warning, it silently floated out to sea. The following two teams travelled to Cape Evans via the Hutton Cliffs on April 21st. First team, Scott, Wilson, Atkinson, Crean. Second team, Bowers, Oates, Cherry Garrard, Hooper. It was blowing hard, as usual at the Hutton Cliffs, and we got rather frost-bitten when lowering the sledges on to the sea-ice. The sun was leaving us for the next four months, but luckily the light just lasted for this operation, though not for the subsequent meal which we hastily ate under the cliffs, nor for the crossing of Glacier Tong. Bowers wrote home, I had the lighter team, and knowing what a flyer Captain Scott is, I took care to have the new sledge myself. Our weights were nothing, and the difference was only in the sledge-runners but it made all the difference to us that day. Scott fairly legged it, as I expected, and we came along gaily behind him. He could not understand it when the pace began to tell more on his heavy team than on us. After lowering down the sledges over the cliffs, we recovered the rope which we had left in the first place, and then struck out over the sea-ice. Then our good runners told so much that I owed up to mine being the better sledge, and offered to give them one of my team. This was declined, but after we crossed the Tong, Captain Scott said he would like to change sledges at the little razorback. At any time over this stretch we could have run away from his team, and once they got our sledge they started that game on us. We expected it, and never had I stepped out so hard before. We had been marching hard for nearly twelve hours, and now we had two miles spurt to do, and we should have stuck it, bad runners and all, had we had smooth ice as it was we struck a belt of rough ice and in the dark we all stumbled and i went down a whack that nearly knocked me out this was not noticed fortunately and still we hung on to the end of their sledge while i turned hot and cold and sick and went through the various symptoms before i got my equilibrium back which i fortunately did while legging it at full speed they started to go ahead soon after that though and we could not hold our own although we were close to the cape i had the same thing happen again after another fall but we stuck it round the Cape, and arrived only about fifty yards behind. I have never felt so done, and so was my team. Of course we need not have raced, but we did, and I would do the same thing every time. Titus produced a mug of brandy he had sharked from the ship, and we all lapped it up with avidity. The other team were just about laid out too, so I don't think there was much to be said either way." Two days later the sun appeared for the last time for four months looking back i realised two things that sledging at any rate in summer and autumn was a much less terrible ordeal than my imagination had painted it and that those hut point days would prove some of the happiest of my life just enough to eat and keep us warm no more no frills nor trimmings there is many a worse and more elaborate life the necessaries of civilisation were luxuries to us and as Priestley found under circumstances compared to which our life at hut point was a sunday-school treat the luxuries of civilization satisfy only those wants which they themselves create. End of chapter Five, Part Five.